Thank you very much for joining us for this conversation. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Let me start with this. Your, your job that you were just telling me about is a little bit nuanced. So I wonder if you could go into a bit more detail about your exact role at Goldman. Sure. So it is a new role for, for Goldman Sachs, I believe. I have spent uh, my career as an institutional allocator. Before then, I was at, in private markets. But I just spent four years uh, in Hawaii as chief investment officer there and two years at Maryland uh, in a risk and hedge fund role. So one of the reasons I joined Goldman is that I've allocated capital. I've also been in private markets, so I can kind of bridge the divide mm. between what they're seeing and what our largest clients on the institutional space are seeing as well. And also kind of help them with their asset allocation in this, you know, these challenging sorts of environments we've been having over the last decade or so. Well, challenging environments is exactly what I'd like to talk about next. That some brilliant market investors, I, I was watching an interview with Stan Druckenmiller recently, who said after 45 years, he feels that this year is the hardest year to, in, to, to have any kind of uh, insight into, into the macro outlook. Is that something that you agree with? That's an interesting thing to say. I always think it's challenging. In hindsight, it's always really interesting yeah. to know what the trends are. I wouldn't say this is the hardest year. I think there are the most opportunities. And so in arrears, we'll probably look back and say we missed something that we could have capitalized on. Mm. It's almost like post-credit crisis when you're interviewing managers these days and saying, well, did you take advantage of traps? And they said, no, we, but we did this other thing. And you're like, well, why didn't you see that? But at the time, it's not always immediately obvious. So I think there's a lot of opportunities what is challenging in the macro picture are the diverging central bank policies we're probably going to see and how countries going to start differentiating because they've kind of been in lockstep mm. uh, for a little bit of time post-COVID. So going forward, it should be a little more challenging to figure out the picture. At the same time, that means there's different things happening in different places in, instead of you know this decade of, of just up and up and up and up. So I think it means there's more asset allocation choices that we can be made, which hopefully leads to better alpha and better opportunities. Well, that's interesting what we just said about um, about central banks, because I agree with you. I mean, almost ever since the financial crisis, there's been a, a general easing of, of lower rates and then obviously a rate hike cycle, which we've just experienced. So when you look at the US, what's your sense about the inflation outlook? Do you feel that the Fed is going to stay around this level for a while? Do you see that there's further hikes to come even? Or do you see like the bond markets telling us that we've got easing to come? It feels like equities and bonds are telling us different stories. Equities are saying, we're going to keep rates here or maybe even go higher. And bonds are telling us that rates are coming down. So where do you sit? It's challenging when uh, when folks say that equities and bonds are telling these different stories because there's so many variables that could mm. explain. It's not as simple as that. It's never that simple, right? It's really easy to say XYZ is the one reason. So inflation is the one reason why things are behaving this way. But really, things have changed so much in the last 20 years. The advent of quantitative trading, the change in rates outlook, the, where bond yields have gone. So there's a lot going on in the macro picture that makes it really difficult to pin any one thing. I would say... You know, it really depends how the rest of the year plays out. There's a lot of things that could happen. We just had a major election, but we've got a couple more that are coming up in the next, you know, year or so. So those could always impact things. I think, yeah. you know, a couple of years ago, could we have predicted Ukraine, Russia? Maybe, but not in the way that it actually spelled out. We'll have to look at the oil and gas picture, the dollar picture. In terms of whether or not we're going to get additional hikes, I think part of that depends on what happens in the credit picture. Much of last, you know, 2022, we already saw tightening in credit lending standards. I think there was something like 85% of reporting small banks were already starting to tighten their 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 lending, right? So we'll have to see a year out from that, what, what's happening, you know, post the January and February issues, I guess more February, March in the, in the mm -hmm. banking sector. So that's one thing that could affect it. Also, you know, one or two data points, as you know, in employment, 
uh, or prices do not a story make. So we still have additional numbers we need to see in the labor picture. And I, I was actually thinking this morning, if I had to pin the entire future on one piece of information, like as a, as a former CIO, you look at, you know, tons and tons of data. If I just wanted to look at one number for the rest of the next three years, I think I'd want to see labor statistics. I think they're more important now than ever. And I think that's going to have a lot to do with where we see the Fed. So unemployment's ticked up. Where are we now? 3.7, 3.8%. Is there a magic number at which point the Fed can kindly sort of take a victory lap and said it's done its job to really have an effect on inflation? Let me ask you a quick second point to that question, because I don't think I'm as anywhere near as much of an expert as you are. But um, when it comes to US monetary policy, is there any argument to say that what the Fed does is having less of an effect now than it has previously? And that could be a culmination of so much fiscal stimulus that there's just so much washing around that they it doesn't have as much as a, a leveraged effect. And secondly, so many of the products which they aim to affect don't affect them because there's 90 to 95 percent of the mortgages in the US are, are fixed. So there's obviously very little effect right now. I mean, we'll see when that runs off. If you could talk a little bit to those two things. So that's an interesting question on whether or not the Fed impact is as large. I think back to your earlier point on distortions in the equity and bond markets, central bank action does distort some of the volatility we see there and, and some of the pricing, some of the curves pricing that we see. Sometimes when it doesn't make mm -hmm. sense, it might have to do with stimulus, right? In terms of whether or not they have an effect, I mean, I think the Fed is a much different animal than it was 20 years ago. And I think, first of all, you and I are probably too young to really know what they were saying 30, 40 years ago in person, anecdotally. But they certainly have uh, this we all have to move in lockstep type of mentality now where they're all coming out and trying to show support. So it's definitely a different animal. I'm excited to one day read the autobiography of the Fed and, and see what's really happening there. And I think listening to former Fed governors, we get to hear a lot more interesting things about what's actually going on. Whether or not it has effect, again, I think it goes back to there's just a lot of variables. And I think this inflation scenario was really challenging. So no two inflationary scenarios have ever been the same. Mm -hmm. Go back to the 1920s, you can find multiple, in the US, you can find multiple um, different causes that are driving inflationary scenarios. And you've got rates and equities in different places. So everyone can say this time is different, but this time really was different. It's a unique situation. It, so you have to see that like the Fed started hiking when we were already about a, at an 8% inflation rate. So the solution was not immediately obvious. Again, in hindsight, we can say, wow, at 8%, they started hiking. But obviously, they're paying attention to that, right? So we were seeing things that were really challenging in this sort of market environment. So I don't know if it's fair to say that they can't change things. I think that this dynamic is really tough, especially coming out of post-COVID and how much it, you know, inflation was disrupted on a world order and globally. And so they're not just managing, you know, how they're playing in this game, or but they have to manage all the players on the field or think about how they are all maneuvering as well. And you know, with the advent of AI and that technology and the internet and social media, like, you know, 20 years ago when a hedge fund would say, we really know what we're doing uh, because we have a key insight into the central banker. We're really tight with this person. I think those are harder to believe stories now because yeah. the world's gotten smaller in some yeah. respects, right? Yeah. So I think there's just a lot of variables that come into play on that. It's just a very different environment. Elizabeth, you said something very interesting, which is that if you could just focus on one statistic, it would be labor, yeah. la labor statistics. Can you extrapolate a little bit more on that on just why that's so crucial for you? 
Yeah, so it's interesting. So I think five or six years ago when I was working in risk management, I probably had seven or eight metrics for what we thought might be priced in the market, what might not be priced in the market. Unemployment was on there, but but really just unemployment. And it wasn't moving much at the time, if you remember. Mm. It was pretty, pretty static. And mm. um, we were looking at CPI. We were looking at the dollar. Um, but now I think more than ever, the labor rate, participation, unemployment, wages. So taking labor as like, a, so when I say one data point, maybe I'm being a little disingenuous. Mm-hmm. But taken as a whole, that theme, labor, why does it matter? One, it ties to AI. It matters for productivity reasons, right? It also matters for the health of the U.S. economy, wage increases, um, services inflation. Also, do we have, we experienced a structural shift. So we've had so many prints come out in the labor numbers that miss the mark lately. Obviously, we're not understanding something in the data there, right? And there's been some comments that maybe there's you know some funny numbers going on. I I don't know. Yeah. I don't collect this data, but I do think it it's going to have meaningful implications for the U.S. economy, for the Ch- Chinese economy, right? Because mm-hmm. um, they've got some labor dynamics there as well, and I think it's going to have really important Im- implications for outcomes of asset classes going forward, and that all ties into demographics. So it's really. You know, it's like you pull a leg muscle, the rest of your body kind of reacts in one way or the other. And I think Mm -hmm. that's similar of the labor market. When it comes to commercial real estate, there's some talk in the market that this is a possible shoe to drop. It feels like a lot of these loans are going to roll off very slowly. I even read a newspaper today that there are some banks who are trying to offload these loans, even at a discount, and take their losses now. Now, part of me thinks, oh, great. Some of these smaller banks are being prepared. And then part of me thinks, well, hang on a sec. They must maybe they can see something that we can't yet, and they're just trying to get them off their books at ninety cents in the dollar or something. Do you have a particularly strong view on 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 where we stand on commercial real estate and how much of an impact it could have? If I had to make one strong view, I would say when everyone's fleeing an asset class or everyone says it's not a great place to be, wait two years and it'll probably start to look more interesting because the capital flooded out, right? Mm-hmm. It's like watching the tides, and so you might want to be there. So I think eventually it'll become a good place to search for alpha because it'll be a drain of capital. Mm-hmm. I think it probably offers new opportunities to investors who can step in and feel, fill the hole, just like that happened in private credit and, and private equity years ago. So hedge funds, private investors, those sorts of things. I think it's really easy to point to, to commercial real estate right now and say there's a bad actor, there's something we want to avoid. But that's overly simplistic. There, there's there's probably pockets of opportunity, maybe not right this second, but down the road. I can't work it out because, I, I mean, I watch these news shows like you do and they keep telling me that these so many cities across America where offices in the middle of these cities are just completely empty. Maybe that's just one of those, you know, times where the media is just maybe exaggerating a story and that we're interested in that media and then it starts to become a reality. So do we all need to be a little bit careful about how we, you know, ingest this media? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, in parts, I don't think they're wrong, right? Um, downtown Manhattan feels very different to me than it did 15 years ago. San Francisco feels very different to me than it did five years ago. This work from home phenomenon has legs and I think it, it potentially, and this is not a Goldman view, this is my view, may have changed the future of work forever, mm. but there's always something that else that comes on and, and and changes another part of it, right? So I don't know what that what that next step will be, but there's also repurposing that can be done and imagination that can be done. Like who, before we work, who would have thought the co-working space would have been yeah. you know, something that would have taken off so strongly? So there's got to be opportunities. I think what is distressing. I was just in my hometown, and there's a really large mall there. Where's the hometown? It, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia. Okay, and. It used to be the place to hang out on Friday nights when I was a tween, and I was driving by it on Friday night, and there were very few cars in the parking lot. Really? And that is a huge piece of real estate. So 
what do you do with that? I don't know, but University of Virginia could theoretically one day be 100,000 students, right? Because they've got they've also got Zoom classes and whatnot. So there's opportunities to expand into these places. Maybe it just looks different. And with AI, maybe there's jobs we don't even know about yet that could be going to these locations. Yeah. Well, who knows with AI? Maybe they just become college professors, and we're all just <laughs> we're, we're all just getting our degrees online. I, who knows? It's such a such a big question mark. You mentioned China just now. Uh, I was going to ask. Me included, uh, I think people expected the reopening of China, so to speak, to be to create quite a lot of demand for energy, oil, and that didn't really unfold. Do you think um, the oil prices now? I mean, actually, we've got some news today out of the Middle East that there's going to be a cut in production, so the oil prices are doing a little better. But um, do you think that's something that people were positioned? Was it were a lot of people positioned for a pickup in yes. energy prices going into 2023? And how do you see that playing out? Yes, I think so. I think part of that was the combination of equity and bond correlations were high coming out of COVID and, and positive, right? So institutional investors, retail investors, everyone was kind of looking for some sort of diversification in their portfolio other than cash. Because if you think about it, this time a year ago is really when cash started to pay. It didn't before then. I mean, it's almost yeah. literally... You know, it hasn't been that long since we were at 0% rates. It's been kind of amazing. So where do you look for diversification? You can look to hedge funds. You can look to cash. Some investors are prohibited from investing in cash. Commodities you can look at, but a lot of institutional investors, at least, took commodities out of their portfolio a decade ago because it experienced some challenging returns. And it's a difficult asset class usually to hold. Yeah. And same with the retail markets. But you saw in COVID with all the supply chain disruptions, uh, retail really was the first one saying, I, I'm looking at copper, I'm looking at gold. And then and then really last year, or maybe one or two years post-COVID, you started hearing the institutional investors like, okay, where can I reach for yield? So I do think there was a lot of money being considered to be put into commodities last year. It may not have been direct. It might have been through a CTA strategy or something like that. Mm. But there was a lot more interest than I've heard in a really long time. So what happened this, you know, this cycle? Is it China? One, I wish I was in China right now because I would love to see what it's like in this reopening. If you remember when we reopened, it was just yeah completely amazing scenario. Oh, optimism everywhere. Right. So I'd love to be there. But I think this commodity story might be a little different. If you think about how expensive it is to hold a commodity, literally the carrying cost of holding a commodity right now, and that's not just oil, it's metals as right. well. I've never thought of that. Yeah. You've got high cash rates, so you've mm. got a high opportunity cost. And then and then you've got the actual cost of, of the physical commodity and storage. And so... The only way really to get the price back up is to keep destocking, and it'll happen. Like so, commodities are at the same time the most challenging asset class to invest in, and also like pretty predictable to some extent. All you got to do is get the supply low enough that it'll pop, and and it'll become an investable asset class again. And in general, it's kind of how energy energy works, right? You mentioned gold. Is, is is that a safe place? Is that a safe place <laughs> to be now? I mean, are you a gold bug generally? Uh, so personally, uh, you know, I, this might be uh, some Chicago booth economics coming out of me because they've, you know, ingrained it in me. But I, I, <laughs> I don't always love like supply, demand side only investments. I'd like mm. there to be some fundamental value there. Uh, but I have seen a lot of people looking for gold, and I think lately that's more of a dollar story. Okay. Um, and so I've seen not so much uh, your large pension investors, but endowments and foundations uh, looking at gold. I've seen some family offices looking at gold and some some put on an allocation last year, but again, mostly through the liquid hedge fund space. Mm -hmm. The dollar. There seems to be a lot of reasons why the dollar should be have gone down a lot <laughs> uh, over the past few years, whether it be uh, fiscal stimulus, the debt ceiling, but yeah. it, you know, it is the world's reserve currency, so maybe it gets a free pass. Do you have a view on what the dollar 
should have done, is doing, will do. So I don't know if you ever do this, but I, there's sometimes I write emails that I know I'm going to look back in 15 years and say, remember when I said that? We even probably won't have email. I'll just send it from my brain to yours. <laughs> yeah. But there's this email. Well, from our goggles to your goggles. <laughs> there's this email I wrote in September, which... You know, now Goldman Sachs might find out, but I, I would hope they, they I've already, they've already hired me, so now they can't take it back. But um, <laughs> I wrote an email to someone. I said something that's really challenging me for you to understand is the dollar. I wish I was better at understanding dollar moves. I think that's also really challenging, and I completely agree with you that based on the amount of debt we have and a bunch of other dynamics, the dollar is a really interesting animal. And if we were any other country in the world, it would probably have much different dynamics, right? But that's that's sort of the point. I think the scary part is almost everybody here around us, our neighbors, everyone, you know, in in a one mile radius is overexposed to the dollar here. Yeah. So it's a big risk, but it's also a big risk to hedge against the dollar, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look back pre-crisis or actually right around the crisis, a lot of investors took down their U.S. exposure thinking, well, this might be the end. Well, they were singing very sad tunes a decade later. Mm. So what, what happens with reverse repo facility and the, and the treasury issuance and and whether investor demand for these you know these new bills coming out if they're paying you know five five and a quarter or higher 5.05 percent if they're buying those then they implicitly must believe mm. that they that we're not going to default so I don't know if I give you a clear answer on that but those are some of the things that go into my thinking um can I just ask you this there's there's a lot of reasons to be cautious about markets generally. Sure. Um, but are there any reasons that we haven't talked about of reasons to be optimistic? Obviously, we've talked about tech, and that's a potentially a huge tailwind. Yeah. Um, but are there areas of the market where you think there's too much drama, there's too much negativity? So I am probably one of the culprits of the negativity. I always think the sky is falling to some extent. Yeah. But I do think there's a bull case for equities over the long term. You have to have a longer term horizon. You can't be looking over the next year. Mm-hmm. So we're likely to experience some productivity gains, right? Which should help us with some of these labor market issues. Right. We've got be demo- deflationary. Right. And we've got these demographic changes that are coming. Um, so over the long term, I do think that there's going to be there's going to be positive signs for the equity market. It's probably going to be harder. You're probably not going to be able to make 100% of your return from five stocks. Yeah, right. Um, but I think it's a good thing. And we've been seeing small caps, you know, kind of struggling here a little bit. Um, and there's been investor preference for the larger, more established names. And that makes sense when times are challenging. I get that. But we've got a ton of tailwinds uh, behind us. So I think the outlook for stocks is probably... A little bit rosier than than we're hearing. I think XUS is also probably got some strong tailwinds. If you like tech, for example, mm-hmm. and you think it's too pricey here, if you think U.S. equities are 85th percentile, you, you don't want to dip into that. The risk premium is low. Look XUS. To do that, though, you got to get out of the U.S. You got to mm-hmm. go pound the pavement, and mm-hmm. we just haven't had to do that in so long. I think obviously, I think credit's really interesting right now. The risk right. reward in credit, particularly in, in private credit. Um, you've got a lot more control in private credit. You you can go back to the same companies you liked, but you can kind of make the deals more specific to the risk you see for that idiosyncratic event. So I think there's going to be a lot of capital there with the bank pullbacks too that might be challenged. So stepping into private credit is probably a really interesting space. And the duration on the yield curve, what do you think looks more attractive than, than others? Oh, gosh, the yield curve. You know, uh, so I'm still in the, so I think, the Goldman Sachs position would be you should start looking to add duration where you can or add yeah. duration. 
I was actually telling someone this morning, that sounds like a great thing to say. Personally, for me, I'm probably still scared to do it, right? Well, it's, I mean, if you think the Fed's going to start easing soon, then you want to try and lock in these 4 or 5%, you know, three or four right. years out. And then, you know, you've got yourself a nice buffer for the next few years. And then maybe you get some capital appreciation, you know, uh, at some point as well. But I think if you're a retail investor, the shorter duration stuff makes sense until you have a better picture for the long term. You get paid to wait. You get paid to wait. I think, and going back to the private credit example, like locking up your capital for a handful of years mm. in private credit versus 20 in private equity, 10 to 20 in private equity, like that can be appealing if you think there is a bull case for equities. On the institutional side, you really can't lock up your capital for just one or two years on the, on the, on the curve, right? Because you've got reinvestment risk. Yeah. Uh, so it's just, it's just a lot more challenging um, from that perspective. But uh, do I think the time for fixed income is back? Uh, Goldman Sachs would say, yes, it is. But I was, thinking, I was thinking about this earlier today. I don't know if you remember, like five, six years ago, folks were saying, I'm allocating to hedge funds as a substitute for my fixed income book. And- we really okay. haven't heard that as a fixed income alternative in the last couple of years. I think it actually might come back mm. because it's also got like a slightly positive inflation beta to it. It's uncorrelated. And there's going to be a better macro story for, for hedge funds. So I think fixed income might continue to see competition from that side. That's interesting. I had another argument uh, recently, which I'd be interested in your opinion, is that during the 2010s, when there was uh, so much uh, uh, so much quantitative easing, passive investing became such a big deal that it made yeah. stock picking very difficult. Yeah. And now that we've had a lot of volatility, um, opportunities are going to come back now, you know, for the individual stock pickers. Yes. Do you think there's any truth in that? So I think that's true. But if you think about the the total amount of capital in the United States or just, just the institutional community versus where it was 10 years ago, so just public pension funds alone are three and a half trillion-ish in the U.S., mm. So how many idiosyncratic stocks can you plow into at three and a half trillion? Right? They're not all going into equities. I'm being a little yeah, facetious yeah, here. Yeah. But by and large, most larger investors have grown dramatically in size from 2010, right? And if you think about it, they actually lost half their value right before that. So mm-hmm. trying to find those smaller idiosyncratic events is going to be a lot more challenging. It's much easier to go into the mega cap, large cap stocks. For the retail investor, I think this is your decade to shine. I think you got to be thoughtful. I don't know why finance isn't taught more broadly in investments in high schools because this is such a critical skill. Yeah. Um, but but you can be so much more flexible. Just think about it. Like if you want to go buy, you know, a two year two year treasury, maybe you have to ask your spouse. I don't know, but you don't have to convene a committee of ten people. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and wait six months until they're available to meet. Yeah. You can just go do it. Retail has really suffered from not having the same investable universe as institutions for so long, and I think that's a, that paradigm is about to shift. Final question on digital assets. Bit of a left field question, but I do remember a few <laughs> years ago, admittedly when Bitcoin and Ethereum was so much higher, but there was a lot of debate that on a long-term view that um, asset allocators were going to think seriously about allocating capital to some of these digital assets. Is anyone even having those conversations right now? Are cryptocurrencies even like on the table as a possible asset class to invest in? Or you know, are people just waiting till the volatility in those prices calms down? So yes, there are there are in fact public institutions, public pension funds that do invest in crypto. First of all, I'll take a step back. Almost all public institutions have access, have exposure to crypto. They may not know it, but it's in your CTA portfolio or it's in your private equity book, right? There's some flavor of it in there. But there are some that make direct allocations very very small. When folks push back and say, you know, why haven't why hasn't the market gotten there in terms of digital assets and investing? Why are they so late? 
My response to that is, in December of this year, there were a handful of really large institutions that said, we're going into private equity for the first time. Private equity has been around longer than you and I have been around. <laughs> and now institutions are just starting to allocate. So it just is a longer haul. Mm. In terms of the rest of your question, is it the volatility? It's hard to dedicate scarce resources to an asset that's going to have to be such a small allocation with such a high volatility. Yeah. It's just, where do you maximize your time? It's the 80-20 rule, right? That makes perfect sense to me. Elizabeth, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Thank you so much for having me.